Now this is 1 Samuel 14, part two. We've already seen that God can use anybody. There is no limit to what God can do with a man or a woman who is like-minded, after his own heart, who thinks the same way that God thinks. Like God is in no doubt as to his ability. Can he do it? He is already aware of that. And when somebody else thinks like God, they say, you know what? It doesn't matter how many of us there are, how strong they are, how impossible it is, God can do this. And so we've seen how God works through two guys that think like God, Jonathan and his armor bearer. And God worked through Jonathan to shake up the Philistines, to actually inspire terror. And while they were whacking away, God threw in an earthquake, freaked them out. He made them run away in panic. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. But today we have to look at the dark side. What happens when a, when a person doesn't think like God, doesn't think about God, doesn't figure God in at all? That person works against God naturally, without even trying. And here we see this morning how Saul, king of Israel, actually diminishes everything that his son Jonathan set in motion to the point where he's ready to put his own son to death. A natural man without the Holy Spirit naturally works against God. So I'm reading in chapter 14 from verse two, just to recap a little bit about where we're at. It says, and Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock, sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. So the, the situation starting this chapter is Saul is safe, but he is making no progress. Because the Philistines far outnumber him. 600 men is nothing to face these guys with in Saul's mind. But the spot that he's in is easily defensible against this far greater force of the Philistines. There's two sharp rocks next to each other. They would have to go through in something like single file. And a small number of men 
600 could easily defend that. So the Philistines know that and there's no way to go forward. So Saul, Saul is safe and he's defendable, but safe isn't productive. He can't go forward and he can't go back and he's stuck. Now Jonathan thought, what would happen if you and me, armor bearer, showed ourselves to the Philistines? Maybe God would do something. And then that happened. The Philistines bit the bait and Jonathan and his armor bearer began a movement that not only freaked out the Philistines, but it made all the Hebrews working with the Philistines decide to change their minds and get on Saul's side. So all of a sudden, Saul has more men. And the guys that were running away and hiding came out of hiding. So again, you got more guys. So the Philistines are on the run. And then we pick up the story in verse 24. And the men of, well, verse 23 says, the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel were distressed that day for Saul had placed the people under oath saying, cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now this is where Saul begins to work against God because his first concern is not to serve God but to save face. So decides to move out. There's a, an uproar in the Philistine camp. The opportunity is too good. We're not going to pass it up. Let's go get him, guys. But first, cursed is the man who eats anything before evening before I have my revenge on my enemies. That's very dramatic, isn't it? And it sounds like Saul is very intent on getting back at the Philistines, those doggone Philistines. Like that's the uppermost thing in his mind. But that isn't the uppermost thing on his mind. Because if he was really interested in getting back at the Philistines, he would have done so by now. Get that? He was holding still. Jonathan struck the first blow, not Saul. And this is kind of awkward because Saul is the top guy in Israel, right? But Jonathan kind of got things rolling. Now the top guy needs to look like the top guy, don't you think? Isn't it kind of weird if your son just goes out and there and does something and he's really doing great? Well, uh, what about me? And he doesn't want to be shown up. So he gets up and he says, you know what, this is more important to me than my food. I put you all under oath. We're going to go get these guys. Anybody who eats before sundown is cursed. You can imagine this guy's going, wow, does he really mean that? Wow, that's, that's tough. And that's a way to save face. The natural man hates to be number two. And naturally, Saul is looking for some way to be tough and 
not lose face. So this causes a problem too, doesn't it? You're not doing this for the love of God. You're not doing this for the sake of the nation. You're doing this because you can't afford to look, you know, bad. So he puts everybody under a threat and he says, you know what? If you eat before evening tonight, you're cursed. That's kind of difficult, isn't it? Pushing people to get something done. This is not good. So, verse 25. Now all the people of the land came to a forest and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance was brightened because I tasted a little bit of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, there would, for now would there not have been a greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ayalon, so the people were very faint. So this pressure that Saul put on everybody to fight doesn't really help. It actually works against fighting. From Michmash to Ayalon is about 20 miles. Can you imagine fighting, swinging your sword and running for 20 miles and you can't eat? You get low on blood sugar, you know, you need a pick-me-up. You ever been hangry? And when that phenomenon happens, it's like, I don't care where you get it, just get me food. But they can't eat because if they eat, they're cursed. So you don't give it everything you've got. You've got to somehow get through this day and survive. So the people are not in let's go get a mood. They're in how in the world am I going to survive today? And they're not making the effort they could have if they could just grab something and keep going. And then when you come into this forest and see all this honey just free for the taking, they're dying. And nobody dares even taste it. And Nobody's happy with Saul right now. Does everybody get that? And Jonathan eats a little bit of honey and he's refreshed and only then does he find out, oh yeah, your father put everybody under oath and he's not impressed with his father right now either. We could have done a lot more. We could have had a real slaughter here. My father has blown a great opportunity but then Saul even works against all the people. Verse 32. 
And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the food. Then they told Saul, saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep, slaughter them here and eat it and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So everybody is thinking, I gotta make it to evening, and as soon as I make it to evening, then I can eat. So everybody's looking for quitting time. And as soon as it comes, throw my sword down on the ground, where's that sheep? Let's eat it. I don't even know if they cooked it. Who's got time to waste for medium well? Forget this. Give me tartar. <laughs> they only have one thing on their mind. But they're supposed to observe the kosher laws. They're supposed to obey the law of God, which says that the blood is sacred and you cannot eat blood. It's not a food or a condiment or any common thing. He says in the law, I have given you the blood to make atonement for yourselves. The life is in the blood. And the meaning of a blood sacrifice is that this is sprinkling the blood before God to demonstrate that a life has been given as a substitute for the worshiper. And that is the demonstration. So it's not a common thing. And it's supposed to be sacred to the people. They're all supposed to get this. They're supposed to be like-minded with God, thinking like God, like do not eat the blood. It's sacred. But these people are so desperate, they're not thinking about God, they don't care about God, they don't care if they're breaking the law. They don't care. All they can think about is, I gotta eat. And here's Saul to say, you're acting treacherously. No mercy here, folks. You're breaking the law. So he builds an altar to the Lord so that he can eat the animals properly. Now, in verse 35, it says he built an altar to the Lord. That's the large stone. And it's not an altar that he built because he wanted to worship the Lord. He wanted to devote himself. It's purely functional. You have to kill your animals in the right way. You have to drain the blood. We will build an altar so that you can eat dinner. And it's not because of his heart towards God. It's purely functional. So Saul has forced everybody, in effect, to just think about themselves and not care 
that they're lawbreakers. They're working against themselves now. And then Saul actually works against the one who brought about great deliverance. In verse 36, Saul says, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him this day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of my rod. So now I must die. And Saul answered, God, do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. So Saul says to his men, let's go wipe out the Philistines right now tonight, and nobody's up for it. So the priest says, well, let's draw near to God and see what God says, because if God says, go get him, we don't have a choice. So the priest is trying to help out. But then God doesn't answer. And God doesn't answer because there's sin in the camp. And Saul says, even if it's my son Jonathan, he shall die. Everybody goes, huh? I ain't talking. Because they all know it was Jonathan. And then the priest casts the lot before the Lord. And there it is. Jonathan's the guy. What did you do? Yeah, well, I ate a little honey. So I guess I've got to die now. <laughs> and Saul says, you are going to die. I mean, this is the way the natural man thinks. You blow it, you die. There's no mercy there. But... God thinks a different way, and so do the people. The people have had enough. And they say, absolutely not. He does not have to die. We can ransom him. And this is the big difference. You know that God delights in unchanging love. He's gracious and compassionate. He gave the law 
that it would convict people of their sins so that he could restore them into fellowship. It's not given. In order to kill and you have sinned and you must die. God doesn't even delight in the death of the wicked. You know what he'd rather have happen? That the wicked would turn around and come to him so that God can restore fellowship. That's what God wants. That's the way he thinks. In Isaiah chapter 1, he says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. God can figure out a way to save a lawbreaker, a sinner, scum, because he's God and his hands are not tied. And he thinks different. He thinks better. We say, well, you broke the law. It's right there. Going to die. God says, oh, I got a way around that. (laughs) I can save sinners and still be righteous. I can do anything because I'm God. And the people get this. This is a part of who we are. We give a sacrifice. It redeems the lawbreaker. And so they stop Saul from killing his son. Verse 46. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimeaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Now, What we're shown here is that the battle is inconclusive. Both Israel and the Philistines go home. There are no winners and there are no losers. It could have been Israel's decisive victory for the next generation. They could have wiped out the Philistines to the point where they would not bug them for Saul's entire Rain, but because Saul worked against God, it was only this time, and there's going to be a next time, and another next time, and another next time. Now, he's valiant, and he fights all these battles, but he's not seeking the Lord. He's not getting the Lord's strategy, so every victory is just for this time 
there's always going to be a next time, and it never ends. It never ends. The victories are pretty good, but that's all. The enemy comes back. We have a list of Saul's family, and then in the last verse, you see that there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul, and his response is always look out for good guys. Whenever he sees somebody that is really suited to this warfare, you're drafted. You, you, I want you. Because that's his strategy. Get the good guys on your side. Now, you know, it doesn't even cross his mind to say, well, you know, I got Samuel here. And anything Samuel says, it happens. And I could ask him for what to do. And then I would have permanent victories, not temporary victories, but it never comes into his mind to do that. He just thinks, I just got to find good guys so I can keep on fighting. That's what I need. So, Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Does everybody see the reasoning in that? There is no such thing as a neutral party. Many times when I talk to people about Jesus, they will say, you know what, I really don't follow that stuff. I just, I don't care, I'm not for, I'm not against. But what Jesus says is there's no such thing as a neutral player. Because this natural person that everybody is, without even thinking or trying, naturally works against God. Anything that God wants to do, a natural person will actually diminish and destroy and not even enhance or be neutral. So no neutral moral agents here, okay? You're either for God and with him or you're against him. And the reason is because the natural person does not receive the things of God. Can't. Doesn't think like God. Doesn't depend on God. He's pretty sure he's not there. And so there's a complete disconnect. And just doing what you think is right is actively working against God. And we read this. 1 Corinthians 2, a natural man does not accept the things of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So a natural person is alive but spiritually dead and the mind is total darkness. You would just as soon ask Tinkerbell for help. Because in the natural mind, God is right up there with Tinkerbell. Now this shows the absolute need to be born again. It's really not an option. If you want to deal with God, 
You have to go through Jesus because only he can deal with that natural mind. And what he does is he puts it to death. He's not gonna fix up your thinking or give you 10 new good rules because the other 10 weren't working either. And you need a new heart and a new mind and only Jesus will give that to you. But even then, our minds need to be transformed. And it doesn't happen by accident. Just because you say, okay, you slip up the hand, I see that hand, or you say the sinner's prayer or whatever, following Jesus means actively participating in the life of God. It means learning to think like God so that you live in the right way. And if you don't think like God, you're not gonna obey him, you're not gonna go God's way, you can't, it's impossible. So how we need the word of God and the Holy Spirit using the word of God to transform us. Now you know, I'm embarrassed this morning because I say this kind of stuff all the time. All the time. And I embarrass myself because it all comes back to this, doesn't it? And I just want to be the poster child to say there is no other way. There is no other way. If there was another way, I would have found it. But sadly, I must say, there is no instant way to be spiritual. It would be so fun if we could take a pill. And that's it. I think like God. It would be like LSD, only fun. Our minds are open. Whoa! So, you know, I, I don't want to be like Saul and whip everybody and say, you're not reading your Bible. You need to pray more. And you go, yeah, I know. I don't, I don't do good enough. I'm, not, I'm a bad Christian. I love going to church because I get beat so much. You know, I, I don't do any of this stuff. I'm just like a virtual Catholic. Because you run into Catholics, you know, and they go, oh, I'm a Catholic. I'm not a very good Catholic, but I'm a Catholic. Does that count? No. You know what the solution is? The solution is not to take a vow like Saul made everybody do because that doesn't work. You know what the spiritual solution to this is? Is to come to Jesus and say, I'm a sinner. And you have devised a way to save me and still be righteous. And I don't even want to read my Bible. It is Monday morning, man. 
I don't feel spiritual. There's not a tingle in my body. Here I am. You know, if a sinner comes to Jesus, God does the impossible. And he takes out the old heart and he puts in a new heart and he puts in a new mind. And he even gives the life and the heart and everything you need to take the next step. And I can't tell you how many times that I have come to God and said, man, I am a cold, dead potato. Good luck. And then he does something. You've all had those times when you read along and something just about jumps off the page at you, grabs you by the throat. You understand me now, don't you? Wow, I do, I do. Wouldn't that be fun if that could happen every morning? But see, it can. Because see, I experienced that a lot. But if you come to Jesus just as a spiritually poor person, the promise is to that person belongs the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that amazing? See, the answer is not got to try harder, you got to pump you up, you know, and get spiritual muscles. And that you just come to Jesus and you say, Cold and dead, what do you got? And then he does things like raise you from the dead and give you a new heart. God is gonna answer that prayer. And then you can ask God to get into your battles. Every battle that God gets into, he wins. Did you know that? He never loses. So if my big battle is me, Here's my strategy. Would you please win? Would you please subdue me? Take all my stupid thoughts and make them go your way. Help me to think like you. Do you know that's exactly the prayer that God wants to answer? Because it's more fun when we think like him. Then we're not scared to death. But isn't it cool how God has been working for us? Like we take a step and we think, I'm going to die. He says, no, you're not. Look, here's 40,000 pounds. Oh, how did you do that? I'm God. <laughs> Expect the best. It's amazing. And I'm telling you, this is, my, this is my autobiography here. I don't believe God. I know I don't believe God. And he has to prove it to me over and over again. Yes, you can trust me. <laughs> I'm not going to drop you on your head. It's going to be okay. And I say, man, I'm just so sorry. You're so much better than I give you credit for. So he's merciful and gracious. Isn't this wonderful? Amen. So let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you make a way to save sinners who are really caught and guilty and lawbreakers. But you delight in unchanging covenant love. We're so thankful for that today.
And we pray that you would work in my heart and in my mind by your Holy Spirit, through your word, so that I would think like you. And help me, Lord, not to be scared because you're God and you can do anything. And you will do anything for me. This I know, that God is for me. Write that one on our hearts, Lord. Thank you that you're merciful and gracious. Please be in our battles. You give the orders so that these victories are not temporary but permanent. We give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.